If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Matt Taylor is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. It is the last week of school. No more lunch bag letdown. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Thanks for joining us. Feel free to join the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. You can talk. You can text. You can give us your last word. 905-645-3221, including... Another edition of Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. Uh, Matt playing the Black Eyed Peas today. Reason being, it was on this day in 2009. Uh, the Black Eyed Peas, number one on the U.S. album chart with the end. Fifth studio album, lead single, uh, Boom Boom Pow, topped uh, the Hot 100 for 12 weeks. The second, I got a feeling you just heard, spent 14 weeks giving the group 26 consecutive weeks at the number one position. There you go. Uh, feel free to offer your opinion. Love to hear from you. A big show coming up. Uh, lots of stuff going on today. Inflation rate uh, sitting at about 3.4% through May. That's down uh, from last uh, last month. It'll be interesting to see if this reflects in the Bank of Canada and their decision to raise or hold steady on the rates uh, coming up uh, in July. Uh, keep your fingers crossed. Uh, also, fascinating report coming out from the Competition Bureau. Uh, more competition needed in the grocery store industry, you think? Uh, three main players, and uh, all doing extremely well. And the Competition Bureau said we need a little bit more wider variety there uh, in order to, um, uh, you know, bring down prices and um, less control over three main players. Also, the big news, Olivia Chow, Toronto's new mayor with 39% of the vote. And uh, the fascinating thing is, and uh, uh, Colin DeMello pointed this out from Global News yesterday to us, um, that now we have, or Toronto has, the biggest city in Canada, has uh, an NDP mayor with a conservative premier and a liberal federal government. All three represented there. So uh, interesting. And many are saying that, you know, after what Doug Ford said about Olivia Chow, there's no way they can work together. Well, the prime minister and the premier are working together. So uh, I would suspect, and why wouldn't she, uh, the new Toronto mayor to do the same. And if doesn't, uh, we'll certainly look like a, an outcast in uh, the buddy relationship that Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau uh, seem to have. So I think it's going to be, um, I think they'll work it out. Uh, and again, all three levels of uh, of government being represented municipally, provincially, and federally. So I, I think the focus will be on them to, in fact, make it work. Uh, David Johnston, remember him? Remember him, the really nice uh, old governor general who uh, kind of left with his tail between his legs, thanks to the prime minister. Uh, he resigned his seat as the special rapporteur. I haven't said that in a while. Special rapporteur. And I'm sorry, did I get that on you? you get that. Sorry. Uh, special rapporteur. He uh, submitted his final report, but guess what? It's confidential. Oh, my God. Oh, man, his final. Don't worry, I'm going to offer a final report, even though there's no public inquiry. But, oh, yeah, that'll be confidential. I don't know. Like, it's so it's so stupid. It's funny. It's silly. 
but can we be surprised? The same man that recommended that no, there's no way we can hold a public inquiry without revealing some deep, dark, deep, uh, deep, dark secret of some sort. We can't do it. We can't do it. His final report, it's coming. Don't worry. Oh, it's confidential, too. And once again, raising way more questions than what it answers. Thank you, special rapporteur David Johnston, uh, for setting us up for this. So it'll be fascinating to see what happens moving forward. All right, what else we got? 2023, the worst year uh, for Canadian forest fires. Worst year for Canadian forest fires, 2023. Um, and again, showing us that global uh, the global climate change issue is truly a global climate change issue, considering Canada only emits about 1.5%, less than that, of the world's greenhouse gases. But the world is like an, a giant body, uh, the continent's organs. And if one is failing, it shows up in the rest of the body, which is exactly why we have to do something beyond lining the government's money with taxes and actually get the world off of coal and give them the Canadian solutions that they have been begging for for the last couple of years. Uh, Justin Trudeau's plan is not working. Taxing the hell out of us and using carbon taxes and whatever as a revenue generator. And the, and, and the Liberals have been doing this since the beginning days. They understand that Canadians are sensitive about the environment. So, okay, oh, you know, this makes us feel good. We're paying a bit more. We're paying a bit more. But then you realize we're not getting anywhere. We're not driving down that 1.4% because it's negligible. Uh, instead, this is just a continuing revenue generator for the Liberals. And it has been since the provincial McGuinty days. Um, you know, you want to you wanna get uh, Canadians to cough up money, tell them... Yeah, you got to give us money, man. Save the planet. Come on. But this is all about raising money for the liberals, and the results are negligible. So why don't we change our position and get the world off of coal, which is what the rest of the world has been asking of Canada since it's been banging on our door to ask for Canadian liquid natural gas, which the prime minister says there is no business case for, yet tell that to DeFasco who he stood up in front of a few months ago and said, it's going electric. You don't see Europe doing that. You don't see China doing that. Well, they don't have Niagara Falls. They don't have Pickering Nuclear and an endless supply of Canadian clean natural gas to to sustain it all. And then he slips away after the great big uh, photo op. And then all of a sudden, uh, the the city, oh, Enbridge wants to put a great big pipeline down there because natural gas is going to transition it from coal to electricity. And even with... Uh, liquid natural gas, the emission reduction is like 60%. Not good enough. Not good enough. I don't see a business case for Canadian liquid natural gas. Canada's on fire, and all the Prime Minister doing is collecting more money from you. And it hits again July 1. That is not going to save the forests of Canada. However, getting the rest of the world off coal may just do that. So why don't we get into a global strategy instead of something that just makes the prime minister feel good with his woke friends and keeps his hands clean while while we buy dirty stuff from everybody else? That's the way it is. All right. Uh, It is 3.15, solving those world issues and more over the course of the afternoon. 
It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to the show. Jump into the conversation. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. Matt is standing by, and you can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. We all know about medical assistance in dying and some of the controversy and debate that it has uh, caused over the last little while uh, after its implicate, after its uh, uh, implementation. And now a touchy scenario, which I don't, you know, uh, I'm not sure I saw this one coming, is becoming more and more common. People pursuing medical assistance in dying are asking to donate one or more of their functioning organs upon their death that is great but to someone that they know now an updated canadian guideline sets out criteria under which it could be permissible to allow people choosing made to gift their organs to a relative or close friend to talk more about all of this dr carrie bowman with us bioethicist and assistant professor in the department of family and community medicine university of toronto and here now carrie thanks for the time hope you're well yes here I am. Um, all good. Yes, interesting story, isn't it? Carrie, this uh, is a fascinating debate. Did you see this coming? You know, I'm not surprised, but to be honest with you, I also didn't see it coming. And, you know, there's so many issues with medical assistance and dying right now. I, I don't love the timing because I, I feel that, you know, people's overall confidence in this is going to be eroded. When I say this, I mean medical assistance and dying. It's just seems to be one more expansion and and there's a lot of canadians not all that say we're just expanding too quickly so you know a great concern and look i get it but let's just break it down a little bit so if if someone is approaching you know medical assistance and dying if you've got someone in the family like let's imagine a, a child or an adult child doesn't matter what and and you really do want to give them uh, an organ that they require you know, and the patient is the one that makes that request. I still see ethical problems with this, by the way, but I think people really have a right to do that. But what's really different here is is that um, what's really different here is that part of the before the assessment is even complete, um, that, that w- what would happen is that, um, you know, the organ donation teams would actually talk to the patient about that. So, you know, very, very concerning. Um, because when, when that would occur, it, it, it's really kind of pushing someone, I think, much more uh, towards this. And, you know, let me say this from an ethical point of view. You know, organ donation is a great thing. Medical assistance in dying is something that a lot of it's controversial, but many, you know, Canadians uh, want to pursue. But when they get blended together, so, you know, if mm. you've got a situation where you've said to your granddaughter, uh, yes, look, and you know, I've, I've requested medical assistance in dying. And remember, you don't really have to be dying of anything anymore, right? We've got what's called track two, not an immediately foreseeable death. And the person has great doubts, and they they really don't want to go through with it, but they feel they have to because mm. you know they've got a family member on the line, you know, on on waiting for this now. So that's when it becomes very difficult, and. Um, so what they're doing is the proposal, the paper you speak of, they're saying, well, we'll we're going to watch for coercion. But, you know, the the, the, the the situation I just described, that's not really coercion. That's just, you know, that's something different. And there won't be any monetary uh, value involved. Well, 
I've been a healthcare worker for a long time, and we generally do not discuss finances with patients. It's just none of our business, and I think the patients are quite grateful about that. I mean, personal finances. Um, So, you know, I see lots of problems with it, and I think it's too much too fast. It's it's interesting, you know, in the perspective you had, Carrie, where uh, someone is has medical and uh, medical assistance in dying scheduled, uh, but friend, family member needs organ now. Does that speed up the process? Look at it from the other side, uh, from the organ donors. Uh, angle in the sense that they're dying, whether it's a timing issue or not, do we get to choose who gets our organs? I mean, as you said, organ donation's great, but shouldn't they mm-hmm. be put in line and go to the next uh, waiting recipient as opposed to jumping the queue and going to well, a prospective exactly family it. member? Yeah, that, that, that's exactly it. So that's an ethical question, and I don't have a perfect answer for that. But, you know, the thing, too, is it's not immediate with family members. And, you know, family's not the kind of term that it was in 1950. We all know yeah. that. You know, the world has, mm. has moved on from that. But still, we don't know the nature of people's relationships. So how well you know that person, and, you know, to say this is a close family member, you know, and there really could be some financial. Now, of course, the person's going to die, so you might think, what are they going to do with finances? But who knows how these kind of things might not work. And, how, and what about if it gets worked work? into the will, Carrie? Uh, no, someone know. gets this, someone gets an organ. My goodness. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've seen patients, and I, I you know, I, I, I cautiously support medical assistance in dying, but, look, I have huge concerns, as you have heard me express, as to the, the expansion and where we're really going with this. But I really do see a lot of problems with this. And, you know, saying we're going to watch for coercion and monetary gain is not enough. And I think it's really wrong before a full medical assistance and dying assessment is complete. That means eligibility. That organ donation teams should not be part of that. Because, they, you know, it, it really sort of suggests that if an organ donation team is talking to you that, you know, you should be doing this. Um, and that, you know, death is, is you know, that medical assistance, medical assistance in dying is the direction you should be going in. So I, I hope they won't move any further with it. And, and what concerns me is goes right beyond organ donation. And I said this in the beginning is I think it's going to erode people's general trust in medical assistance in dying. And there's enough problems going on with that right now without adding this to it. You know, you bring up a valid point, too, Carrie. It might be as simple as not blending two very serious issues like this. Run them totally separately, and what happens, happens. Well, that's just it. And, you know, in, in traditional organ donation, we have this rigid, you know, the dead donor rule, and you've got to make sure that the declaration of death is never, ever, ever influenced by the need for, for organ donations. Do we have that perfect? Maybe not. But we strive towards it. Because sometimes in ethics, you really have to try and erect some firewalls to make sure one thing's not pulling another. And I don't think we have that here. Dr. Kerry Bowman with us, bioethicist and assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine with the University of Toronto. Uh, medical assistance in dying, donating your organs, can you pick who they go to? That's quite a discussion. Kerry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Take care.
It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. Talk, text, leave us your last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news, 905-645-3221. We've been talking to Dr. Sylvain Chalabois quite a bit recently in regard to uh, food prices and competition and, and something smoldering on the horizon and in a highly anticipated study released today the competition bureau said concentration in the grocery industry has increased in recent years and the largest grocers have increased the amount they make on food sales a handful of grocery giants control uh most of what goes on Loblaws, sobies and metro to talk more about all of this dr sylvan charlebois is with us professor of food distribution and policy director of the agri food analytics lab at dalhousie university and with us now sylvan thank you for the time hope you're well yes i am i hope you're well also you have been getting a lot of press lately and have been talking about this for an awfully long time are you surprised um, this has obviously been going on for a while there's been chatter about it are you surprised where we are where we are with this report from the competition bureau well i mean you have to understand why the report was being done why the study was being conducted uh, i think it has it has to do with the Bureau itself. Uh, this report is really for the Bureau, not necessarily for Canadians. Uh, when you read the report, uh, on several occasions, they actually expressed concerns about the fact that they didn't have access to information. Uh, nobody wanted to disclose anything. Companies can say no to the Bureau, and that's, that's a problem. And so I think that the report will be used by the Bureau to uh, change our competition act and, and allowing allowing parliament to give more power to the bureau that's really what the problem is i mean when you think about the bread scandal which is still ongoing after eight years uh, i think canadians really are getting tired of seeing a bureau not being able to get to the end of many of the things that we're hearing out there and why is that is that because uh, is that because laws need to change what happens now does this have teeth well, so the report itself looks at competition. Uh, I mean, first of all, uh, the, to, to see the company bureau asking for more competition is not shocking. I mean, it's, I think everyone wants more competition. How do you get there? And there are some yeah. interesting recommendations. For example, you know, they, they do recognize all three levels of government. It's not just about the federal government. It's all levels. Uh, for example, we often... We've, we've, we've seen grocers buy several lots of land in different towns uh, only to prevent competition to build another grocery store in the area. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the practice that, that a lot of people are aware of that needs to stop because it really impacts the number of options a lot of people have access to when it comes to buying food. So, so that the approach it was very more was much more granular than what I've seen in the past. So that's good news. And of course, in the report, they do embrace the value of the code of conduct, which would actually give more power to processors and independent grocers. And if you actually empower independent grocers, that's more power, more options for consumers, and more choice as well. Uh, will laws change in, over, in, in order to stimulate this competition that they're speaking of? Uh, I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know where this is going to go. Uh, my guess is that, again, the Bureau will actually use this, uh, use this uh, to their advantage. Uh, I think they will lobby. Uh, the director of the Coverage Bureau will actually use this report to make changes. Uh, and why not? I think Canadians expect that. Because of what's happening, and the big elephant in the room is this whole uh, issue of of collusion affecting bread, but now we're hearing things about meat prices and other verticals impacted by misbehavior. And so relying on companies just to, to admit guilt is, is not a strategy. You need, you need a forceful bureau to force companies to, to remain honest. Sylvan, where does this leave uh, the big box stores like the Costco's and the Walmart's? Well, so they're they're foreign owned, and uh, and frankly, I actually do think that both players have been beneficial to consumers. If you look at the Costco effect, if you look at the Walmart effect, they tend to actually push prices lower. It's the other three that's a bit different in my view, uh, especially Loblaw. Loblaw is incredibly powerful. It can make and break companies, and so. Again, the code of conduct can actually make a difference. Uh, if you're delisted by Loblaws as a company, uh, or if you have a problem with Loblaw, there's no way to go. There's absolutely no way to go. You can't dispute. You can't deal with, with differences you have with, with the company. But the code will actually give a place, a safe place for companies to go and settle disputes. Will we see um, heads of grocery families or whatever uh, back on TV, or is that day gone? <laughs> Do you want uh, leaders <laughs> of the grocery industry back on TV? Not really. <laughs> exactly. I honestly, it, it, they need to go away for a while. Yeah. And uh, there was only one that really became the spokesperson of uh, of his brand and that's Galen Weston. He disappeared about a month ago and frankly I've seen a difference in tone. Fewer people are upset. Uh they they're not personalizing the issue of food inflation as much anymore and that that's helpful. Canada still has one of the lowest food inflation rates in the world. We need to keep that in mind. Things aren't that bad in Canada. But at the same time, things could be better, and the Bureau has a big role to play here. And you also talk about all three levels of government, which is kind of surprising. But, you know, you break down to the municipal level. Again, this is very similar to the housing issue, and that's involving real estate. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? I mean, a lot of people think that grocers are making a killing right now with food inflation. It's the opposite. If you look at some of the latest financial results, grocers are actually selling less food. They're making less money selling food because people are spending more on shelter and paying their mortgages. That's the problem right now. And so people are suffering out there. So they're going to the grocery store, but they're just leaving less money behind. So they're trading down because you can't trade down on shelter as much. How will the big grocers react to this? To the uh, Competition Bureau report, I, I yes. don't know. I, well, first of all, they'll react to things like this. The Retail Council of Canada will react on their behalf. And my guess is that they'll see this as a benign uh, report. Not much is going to change. Uh, we're great. We're good. We're here to serve Canadians. 
and and some of that is absolutely true. I mean, these companies are well managed, but it's been cozy for them. Let's be honest. Margins are double what they are in the U.S., so more more competition would be nice. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Competition Bureau says we need more in the grocery industry. We'll see where it goes. Sylvain, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Take care. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to the show. Jump into the conversation. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia after the 5 o'clock news, 905-645-3221. Olivia Chow is the new mayor for the city of Toronto. What does that mean for the political dynamics? Uh, it's pretty fascinating when you think about it. Olivia Chow and her relationship to the NDP. Obviously, we have a conservative province and a liberal federal government. I predict it will work quite well. Let's bring in Peter Graff, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am, thanks. Hope you're well, too. Your thoughts, Peter, on uh, the fact that we have everybody represented municipally, uh, federally, and provincially here. Some have said that will be a challenge, although we have seen the province and the feds work pretty tight. Uh, Do you see this as being an issue or a lot of chatter about nothing? Uh, Well, I don't think it's about nothing. I mean, there are different ideas about, you know, how you have a a healthy and prosperous uh, Toronto but at the same time, you know, I think uh, all three orders of government uh, see that the success of Toronto is important for their own future as a sort of economic uh, engine of the country. And so they have an interest in avoiding kind of sterile uh, arguments as much as possible. I mean, there'll be no doubt some grandstanding, but at a certain point, you know, deals have to be done and things have to get moving or, you know, you you lose that economic vitality. And that, I think, will keep, uh, you know, the prime minister, the premier and the mayor uh, willing to talk to each other. Post-pandemic, it's tough for any leader, I would imagine. Uh, what do you think the biggest challenges are for Olivia Chow moving forward? Well, I, I mean, I think uh, Toronto's got a huge budgetary issue. Uh, you know, ultimately, uh, it's a big and complex city. It requires a, a public sector that's able to act, but it doesn't have the revenues uh, to do that. And part of that is you know, a lack of support for things like uh, public transit from or senior orders of government, uh, you know, in Canada, that doesn't happen in the way it happens in other countries. And that has an impact for a city like Toronto. Housing would be another one where you're not seeing the investment from the senior levels and it falls down. But it's also that Torontonians are relatively lightly taxed. They're paying less tax uh, than people in Hamilton. <laughs> and, you know, an unwillingness to to pay for the, the goods that make living in a city, uh, you know, a, a, a great option, uh, you know, has a long-term impact. And so uh, that underfunding has, has, has created these problems. And there's a need then to increase taxes in, in Toronto uh, if you want to have, you know, a quality transit system, if you want to deal with having good quality public services, public libraries and the like. Uh, on the taxing issue, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you say that they're paying lower uh, me, uh, lower taxes in the old city of Toronto uh, than they are in other places. Uh, is that with uh, owners that have been there? Once those houses flip, does that not get balanced out? No, not really. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's a weird way that you do municipal taxation, where at a certain point you come up with, well, what's the bill that we have to spend this year, and then that's spread out over tax, you know, the tax base. And so if, you know, uh, 
property values go up, it doesn't mean that the uh, the city suddenly is full of of cash. It's just how how those taxes are distributed across properties will depend on their relative value. So, yeah, the in a way, Torontonians uh, who have owned houses have gotten very rich over the past you know, 20, 30 years with their houses, you know, tripling or quadrupling in value. Uh, and they haven't really had to pay that back in any way to uh, to the city in terms of taxes. So, yeah, I mean, I think it is a challenge for for the city, uh, you know, having been so low tax for so long, uh, you know, to suddenly begin pushing those up slightly, particularly when you have people who are really mortgage strapped. I mean, they're paying so much money in their mortgages that even a small increase in the property tax seems like a huge imposition on their ability to get by. And so squaring that circle is going to be it'd be difficult. But again, you know, if you look at what uh, Toronto, the average Torontonian is paying in taxes compared to, you know, Hamilton, Mississauga, you know, all the municipalities around Toronto, it's it's a place where they've actually been lightly taxed. Uh, isn't that made up, though, with development taxes and other uh, municipal taxes that are put put onto that? I mean, that's one of the reasons the prices are so high as they are in Toronto. Uh, I know the, the argument that you're making, but is it not a little bit of a red herring here in the sense that where they lose it one way, they gain it somewhere else? Well, I mean, development charges are meant to be paying for, you know, the additional costs that come from certain kinds of development. And so, you know, you get some of that. Uh but, you know, it's a different kind. If you look at, you know, municipalities around Toronto, they're also getting those kinds of charges for the development of new subdivisions. In Toronto, it's tied more to, uh, you know, the growth of uh, up into the air, if you like. Uh, but, you know, that development also has its own uh, expenses that are related to that. And, you know, the need for new parks, new schools, new public amenities, uh, even in the downtown area where you've seen the growth of, of these towers, uh, uh, you know, those taxes are meant to be paying for that rather than for the ongoing running of the city, you know, in terms of things like uh, a functional subway system and bus system, uh, public libraries and the like. 102 candidates. What are your thoughts there? Well, I mean, it's great to have an open electoral system so people aren't, uh, you know, forced out because they don't have the financial means. But uh, I think a, a system where you asked for a greater number of signatures from people uh, supporting a candidate might weed out, uh, you, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe I shouldn't call them nuisance candidates, uh, but people who are do, doing it for a lark or uh, for their ego or what have you, who would have no chance of really having, you know, broad support. Maybe there should be uh, a slight increase in the barriers to putting one's name on a municipal ballot in Ontario. Um, again, maybe not on the financial part, but being able to show that there's uh, voters from a variety of parts of the city willing to support a mayoral candidate. Uh, you know, might not be an unfair barrier uh, in, in this context. Uh, we have NDP, uh, the Conservatives, the Liberals represented with all three levels of government. Any reason to think they can't make it work? Uh, well, I mean, again, they'll have, I think, different visions about uh, what should be done in the city of Toronto. And and I think, you know, we're going to see Olivia Chow take up the same uh, mantle as uh, John Tory and, and Rob Ford before her in terms of the lack of... Uh, funding sources in the city and the need for senior levels of government to do more. And so I think there will be some tensions around that uh, at various times. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, there will also be points of agreement uh, around things like encouraging further, you know, development of housing in the city, uh, you know, limiting some of the the blockages that have been put into, you know, developing and intensifying development uh, in, in Toronto. So, yeah, I, I predict there's going to be conflicts. But again, uh you know, certainly what we've seen in the last 24 hours is a really concerted attempt both at Queen's Park with the, the Premier and uh, with Olivia Chow in Toronto to, 
to bring the temperature down and to to try and find a way to work on files uh, where you know they'll have positive interactions, kind of replicating a bit what we've seen with Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau in federal provincial relations. So uh, I don't think the conflicts go away structurally. Uh, the need for more money from the, the central, uh, the, the federal or provincial governments for things like housing and, and transit uh, will continue to be uh, a sticking point. But uh, I don't think we're really, uh, you know, if there if there's uh, someone who's most likely to upset the apple cart, it's it's Doug Ford. But I think he also uh, likes to be in, in the deal and making deals and being part of s solutions. And in that context, then, uh, there's a lot of incentive for cooperation over uh, kind of pointless posturing and conflict. Peter Grave, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, Olivia Chow, the new mayor of Toronto. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Welcome to the show. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Talk, text, leave us your last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news at 905-645-3221. If you're listening to the show, you may you might remember, and especially during the uh, global pandemic, we really tried to highlight and draw attention to as many small businesses and initiatives in our city to try to help them through and get them through uh, some really, really trying times. Now we're coming out of or we're out of a global pandemic, and we've got a whole new set of problems uh, on our hands, especially around affordability. I don't need to tell you about that. Some sad news for a business that may, that may be well-known to local pop culture fanatics uh, or anyone who got used to seeing a large Spider-Man on the outside of the building while driving past 847 King Street East. Cool Stuff Toys will be closing its doors at the end of June. About 24 years in business, rent going up. To talk more about all of this, Jeff Smith is with us, owner of Cool Stuff Toys, 847 King Street East in Hamilton. And here now, Jeff, thanks for the time. Uh, some sad news for you. When did you first find out about all of this? Oh, hey, Scott, thank you. Uh, well, actually, June the 9th was when I got the email from the property management. Uh, we'd been here for 17 over 25 years, and we'd been paying just under $1,200 a month, and they decided because they couldn't get the uh, rezoning through a minor variance, uh, we were able to put them on hold uh, since January 20th of last year. And because that plan A, B, and C didn't work, they're trying like plan L on us now. So June the 9th, we found out uh, the 1186.50 I was paying a month was going to be going up to $2,500 on July the 1st. So that's three weeks' notice. And, you know, modern day, uh, you've got communications, uh, social everywhere, right? So you think a little bit more communication would be necessary for something like this, but. They're doing their best to get us out of here so they can turn each unit, like three uh, separate condos in here for about $2,000 per unit. So, you know, from a business point of view, it makes sense, but there's never been any honesty or openness or any kind of dialogue whatsoever, uh, despite their assuring the Committee of Adjustment that as of January 20th last year, they're going to have a, a committed uh, dialogue with, with the owner of the toy store, which has never occurred. So did you ever talk to them, Jeff, about any of this? No, this just came out of the blue. Uh, like I said, it was just, uh, they've been trying to get the rezoning passed. Uh, and back when I had the Committee of Adjustment meeting, or our meeting was actually shut down before it even occurred. And so I was scrambling around at home thinking, like, you know, my Wi-Fi had gone out or, or something. But it got shut down on the Committee of Adjustments uh, area. And they realized that we had about 25 people waiting virtually and on their cell phones to uh, kind of weigh in on things and try to help us out. And because they knew there was a pushback on this half of the building, they decided just to pull back. And uh, now that their renovations are almost done on the other half, now they're setting their sights on this again. 
So is this going to be is this going to be now used for residential? Is that what you're saying, Jeff? Yes, exactly. So what what was explained to me back when uh, friend Jason Farr was the Ward Two counselor years ago? If I had a, a business here, a commercial property, and I decided to retire and no longer run the business, but I was living in a, in a commercial building, but as a resident. Now it's taken up commercial space, so now it has to be one way or the other. Either it has to be commercial or it has to be residential. It can be both, and so now they've they've kind of set that as as the rule. But um, the thing is, residential used to be two to three times cheaper than commercial, and now it's just not the case. It's the other way around. Wow! So if they get me out of here, instead of paying twelve hundred dollars a month, they're going to get six thousand dollars a month. And again, from a business point of view, that makes sense, right? You want to. Uh, you know, buy a building as an investment, you want to make the most that you can, but at least be honest and open about it. You know, I might not like what's happening, but at least if you're open and honest with me, I'd respect that. And, and they have no respect and uh, they just have lots of money. So that's what it's So you, you didn't see this coming at all, Jeff? Well, you know what, with the, the new ownership, uh, they've been doing renovations around us. So I just kind of thought that they're renovating and then maybe we'd be, get to stay here. But what they started doing, telltale signs were. Uh, they had to do some siding around the building, so all of my signage came down. It never went back up. My address came down. Thankfully, I had another address sign inside of the, the building. That came down as well. Uh, they had a sneaky architect in here during lockdown twice, uh, you know, two days in a row for eight hours. He had a laser measure, which he can do, like, measurements in seconds, and he was here mm-hmm. for eight hours. So when I asked him about it, he said, well, I'll just get measurements for the owners. I said, no, I get that, but, you know, eight hours? I said I could have had it done in half an hour. <laughs> so if, if, you're, if you're measuring for condos or apartments, I said, I need to know. I've got so much stuff here, I can't move that over a weekend. And, again, no communication. Um, skip forward about a month after that. There's a guy standing about 15 feet away from me with a big grin on his face as I'm locking up, and it turns out it's the same architect. He's got a grin on his face like he knows something I don't know. And mm. he was drawing up blueprints. And so a month later, we get uh, paperwork from the city, because we live around the corner, and he didn't realize that. And so we got a notification that they're going to drop um, condos. So, again, I, I uh, mentioned it to him two days before our committee of adjustment meeting, and I said, you know, I asked you to reach your face. You didn't have the decency to be honest with me. And his attitude was, well, I don't have to tell you uh, or any other tenants. It's up to the property management, the owners, or the landlords, if they decide to or not. And that was just his attitude. So. And that and, and, and that makes total sense, Jeff. I mean, that's not his place. It's the guy that owns no, the place. But, the but that being said, it doesn't it doesn't help your wounds at all in any way. No, right? no. But he had a lot more involvement than just being the guy right. measuring it here. He was also yeah. involved in the renovations. He was the the agent for the owners during our right. meeting, the committee of adjustment meeting. So, you know, it was just one thing. I mean, to, to say, like, hey, I'm the guy that's delivering your flyers today, but all of a sudden you're the guy doing, you know, also running the place and doing right. that and the other thing. You got a lot more involvement than you're letting on. And, and maybe there is a certain amount of uh, things he doesn't have to discuss with with us as tenants, but somebody should be. So, and, uh, any more recourse with the city on this at all, Jeff? Is do you have any recourse well, I at had, all? Initially, when all this stuff happened, I'd send out emails to uh, the former mayor back when when this first started happening, and then this the, the rent thing. I'd sent out a message to uh, current mayor Andrea Horvath and uh, our Ward Three councilor Narendra Nan. So I've heard back from her representative. Uh, haven't heard anything back from the mayor. I didn't hear anything back from her either when she was the MP. Um, and back when I first started this whole thing, uh, going back about a year ago, I guess, before the rent increase, uh, I sent messages to all 15 counselors and only heard back from three of them. And two of them were assistants, and one was, the only one who had the decency to call me uh, was Jason Farr. And he goes, yeah, this is definitely a rent eviction that's going on here. 
and it just seems like uh, this hmm. is being sold out from underneath us. So eventually, wow. it's going to get to the point where Hamiltonians can't afford to live in Hamilton anymore. They're just being run out of the city. What does and this mean for Cool Stuff Toys? Well, as, as a business, like a store, like a brick and mortar store, this this will be my final days, like this Friday. Yeah, yeah. Um, going online, I know that's you know the former mayor was trying to push that back during COVID. And, you know, in the, in the uh, need to get more people into residential, I think that opened up the doors. With people closing yeah. their businesses, all of a sudden now it's opened up doors for those to become residential and mm. at a much higher rates too, right? Plus the city gets the rezoning money and they get the permit money. Um, you know, the city is supposed to be about promoting and, and growing businesses, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really seem that way. Website, so, Jeff, that you're going to go to to fire up Cool Stuff Toys now? Can we promote that at all, or is that still... Well, you know, it, it's, it's one of those funny things, Scott. I've had a, had a website for 25 years, and I never once sold anything on it. And it just I'm kind of old school. It was more like a show and tell for people that couldn't make yeah. it here. Like if people traveled from around the world, they could come see your store or whatever. But it's, it's probably something that I just have to get past being the old school guy. Yeah, and I hear you. Get in a more modern sense. I, I don't even have a cell phone, so... <laughs> Jeff Smith with us, owner of Cool Stuff Toys, 847 King Street East in Hamilton. Gone by the end of the month. Everything's got to go, so if you can help them out, stop on by 847 King Street East in Hamilton. Jeff, yeah. thanks for sharing the story. Oh, Good no luck problem. moving forward. Thank you so much, and thank you all your listeners as well. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Jump into the conversation. Starts with you. Give us a call, 905-645-3221. Talk, text, leave us your last word. Join us about a half an hour from now for Hammerhead Trivia, Hamilton's favorite game show. Love to hear from you. Phone lines always open, 905-645-3221. Have you tried to buy gas at a Petro-Canada lately? Some are saying that the Suncor Energy Incorporated cyber attack may be the most significant cybersecurity breach of an oil and gas company uh, thus far in Canadian history. Um, the confirmation followed days of public speculation after social media users complained on Twitter over the weekend about an inability to use credit, debit cards at uh, Petro-Canada gas stations in multiple major Canadian cities, as well as uh, difficulty accessing car wash services. Oh, no. Uh, to talk uh, more about all of this and how big is it, Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, and with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Well, I'm well because I certainly don't need gas from a Petrocan outlet today, but, you know, I can't say the same for a whole lot of other Canadians. How many times have we talked about this? Is this the same thing? We're just not (laughs) investing enough in cybersecurity? How does this compare to others? Uh, This is significant. I mean, yeah, this is a classic ransomware attack. It's a cyber incident. They've admitted as as much. It's playing out as these attacks always seem to. A service is unavailable. Uh, They announce that it's unavailable, but they tell you that the data is okay. So far, they have no indication that data has been compromised. And it takes a while to get those services back. And then eventually we're probably going to hear more than likely that, yeah, there was some data that was uh, included in this. And uh, here's some free credit monitoring for your trouble. Um, so, yeah, I, I almost feel like like a sense of deja vu. Like when we have talked about this. It almost seems depressingly frequent. Uh, but what's different about this one and the reason that, you know, we should be talking about it and should be concerned is this targets infrastructure, right? So mm. we've seen, for example, a couple of years ago, there was an attack on in the U.S. where on uh, an outfit called Colonial Pipeline. They're the biggest yep. pipeline uh, company in the U.S. 
And for a few days, you couldn't find gas, up gasoline for your car up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, so, you know, but of course, we forget about that. But the thing is, cyber, cyber criminals don't. And they're increasingly going after infrastructure. And the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity, which is part of the CSE, the Communication Security Establishment, uh, this is the cryptologic organization of the Canadian government. They've been warning for months that the oil and gas sector is vulnerable to infrastructure targeting attacks from cyber criminals. They're looking for money. They're looking for notoriety. The industry historically isn't spending as much as it should on security. It's not training its people well enough. And we know that these attacks usually start off with an employee or a contractor clicking on the wrong thing. They, they get a phishing email, but they don't realize that it's phishing email. And they click on it, and then, of course, they're infected, and it spreads from there. So it's a combination of factors that we've seen before, but it's playing out on a much more terrifying stage now. And so we're seeing you can't get gas now. Well, at some point, it might target electrical infrastructure. At some point, it might target something else. But we're starting to see impacts that touch you and me day to day. And that's kind of frightening. And, you know, this should be the event that makes us realize now's the time for us to do something. Now's the time to push the government to really act. But like most other cyber attacks, uh, this will fade into history as well. And we'll forget about it until the next one. Uh, and, and I guess at the end of the day, we shouldn't be complaining when our company once again makes us do another security module on all of this, uh, which seems to be ongoing. And I guess obviously this is the reason. Are we just to assume that there was a ransomware, there was a ransom paid here from Suncor or will be? Uh, I'm willing to bet that uh, if the ask has not happened, it will. And at some point, Suncor will have to come clean about whether it paid it or not. We know the best practice from uh, both the FBI as well as CSIS. They always advise organizations to never pay the ransom simply because um, statistics show that once you've paid the ransom once, you become a mark for future attacks. Yeah. They they know that you're willing. Uh, and so uh, you're significantly more vulnerable to re-attack over time. Um, and so, you know, we're not quite sure at this point yet because the company typical at this stage is holding things very close to the vest. But over time, we will find out. Um, and, you know, and, you know, the good news is if, if you don't shop it, you know, if you don't get gas at Petrocan, you're fine. But most Canadians, if you have a car, you've probably gone there. So now I'm wondering, even though I don't need gas this week, I work from home, I'm taking my bike everywhere. But I wonder what happens about, you know, the, the last number of times that I'm on record having swiped my card. My information is on those systems. So this could potentially touch a large, huge number of Canadians. And we don't even realize it. So this is the time for us to really open our eyes, start looking at online transactions and saying, do I see something that's a little bit odd? Because it's events like what are happening right now with Suncor and Petrocan um, that really do reinforce and, and sort of open the door to the kinds of identity theft attacks and other kinds of attacks that target us for months and years after things like this happen. Are their services back to normal yet? Uh, to, from what we can tell, no. Um, and what's even more alarming here is that uh, there are also reports of Suncor employees who are not able to access internal systems as well. So that, to me, suggests this is a lot more widespread than the company is letting on. Um, and that instantly means that the potential for personal data to be included in this, that it was part of the breach, um, has just gone up. Uh, because we're now hearing reports of this. So uh, we don't know. And it usually takes days, if not weeks, for them to be restored to full functionality. Remember when Indigo 
suffered a ransomware attack. It took weeks for their point of sale systems to be restored to normal. I would expect the same thing to happen here. Either you know get your gas elsewhere or bring cash when you go to Petrocan. And I'd be very wary about sharing private information with this company for a good a good amount of time to come. Any idea who did this? Will we find out? Uh, sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. Um, you know, this is they're clearly after money. Um, and there are there obviously is a lot of money in the energy sector. Suncor, a very successful member of Canada's energy sector. So, um, you know, we're not quite sure it could be state sponsored, um, but we're, we just don't know at this point. Um, hmm. Sometimes we do find out a few weeks or months after an attack who the group was. But the thing is, we don't really know individual names and we probably never will. They, they tend to dissolve and they reform. There's a new group coming onto the radar almost every day. And so uh, they're very shadowy. They, they live kind of, you know, on the, on the fringes um, and they don't want to be known except within their own hacker community where uh, bagging a major game like this obviously brings them the notoriety that they seek. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, talking about the Suncor Energy cyber attack and how it could affect the company moving forward. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. Appreciate it. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Jump into the conversation. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. You can talk. You can text. Leave us your last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia at 905-645-3221. Over the weekend, um, we sort of watched, um, I don't know, uh, uh, an almost coup. Uh, as uh, the Wagner mercenaries decided to to march towards Moscow, created some uh, situation for a while uh, early in the weekend, and then an about face, and they turn around and went in the other direction, uh, and 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 now uh, Putin is left to um, I guess clear up the PR damage. What state? What is is the state of the population of Russia following the Wagner incident over the weekend, and how will the state? respond to all of this let's bring in matthew light associate professor of criminology and sociological studies affiliated faculty uh for center for european russian and eurasian studies at the university of toronto and here now matthew thanks for the time hope you're well thank you good afternoon so as we've had some time to digest this what are your thoughts uh is putin a weaker leader now as a result of what happened or didn't happen over the weekend uh, I think you'd have to say yes, um, bearing in mind that we're still sorting out exactly what, as you said, happened or didn't happen. But there's no way that, um, based on what we already know, it looks good for him. So um, you refer to this as an almost coup, and that part is a bit unclear. Um, it does not appear that the Wagner um, column of tanks and, and soldiers was intending to actually overthrow the government of Putin, but they rather um, seem to be trying to pressure him to make changes to some of his plans, including to um, dismiss the defense minister, whom they regard as incompetent as well as unfriendly to them, um, and to cancel plans to integrate them um, involuntarily into the Russian defense ministry. Now, according to uh, to Putin's staff, um, they did not get these demands, um, but it is rather hard to deny that Putin initially went on the air and said that they were traitors who would be punished, and then they were then essentially um, allowed to to leave the country safely um, and to have um, the criminal case against them, at least in theory, dropped. Um, now, all this is, is very much up in the air, 
But it does look as though Putin had to um, essentially back down and negotiate with people who were threatening him with force. That being said, what happens to the Wagner mercenaries and their leader? Uh, Where are they at this point? Well, um, it has just been reported that um, their leader, Prigozhin, um, is now in Belarus. Um, It's not clear how many uh, of the Wagner um, personnel are with him. Not all of them joined him on the march to Moscow. Um, Some of them remained at their posts. Others may have returned to those posts um, and were promised, as I mentioned, um, amnesty. Um, we don't know whether some of those people will be uh, essentially allowed to withdraw um, from, from military service, whether some will opt for the, the um, continued service in, within the Russian Defense Ministry regular forces or what. We also don't really know what Prigozhin is supposed to do in um, Belarus, whether he's just supposed to essentially retire there um, or whether uh, he and Putin have some plans. Um, it has been discussed that he might be um, used to um, foment further trouble in Ukraine, whether by planning um, an invasion from the north or something else, but I've seen no proof of that. Uh, is, it, it, would, this, would this group still be a part of the Russian military force, or is that still to, to be determined? And if they aren't, is that not a loss for them? Um, it is sort of still to be determined, um, but... Yes, this is not a good situation for the Russian military. So um, they have relied on Wagner for years to do their dirty work in in, um, other countries, including Syria and Africa, where it has to be said that um, they've scored a number of successes from the Russian government's point of view, whether it's propping up the uh, Syrian dictator Assad or helping to to overthrow governments in Africa that they regard as unfriendly. and they were also quite useful in attacking Ukraine. Now, Putin seems to have decided that um, it is no longer worth the trouble of dealing with essentially insubordinate mercenaries. Um, it's not clear how uh, trying to force them into the Russian military is going to make them any happier. Uh, the things they are saying about the lack of equipment and ammunition um, will not be solved by them being transferred against their will into the defense ministry. Um, and it seems to reveal a kind of a broader problem in the Russian ranks, which is unhappiness with the conduct of the war on the one hand and Putin's unwillingness to um, to respond to those um, concerns on the other, in particular by making any personal changes to the top. One um, recent piece of information is that he has appeared um, in, in videos with um, the defense minister suggesting that, that he has his full confidence and does not intend to remove him. Hmm. Uh, uh, we've only got a few seconds left here, Matthew. How is this playing within uh, within Russia with the citizenry there? Well, it's very hard to know, but I think it's very shocking for people in Russia to see uh, overt signs of conflict um, within their government. Putin has hmm. tried very hard over the years to repress any suggestion that there is disagreement among the top ranks of the Russian government. And that that disagreement and, in fact, violent conflict is now out in the open. Matthew Light with us, Associate Professor of Criminology and Sociological Studies, University of Toronto and the State of Russia following the weekend incident. Matthew, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Take care. Bye now.
It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Jump into the conversation. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open. Talk, text, leave us your last word, 905-645-3221. Annual rate of inflation dropped sharply last month, uh, and that was a surprise considering it jumped up a little bit last month. But some economists argue that the slowdown may not be enough to deter the Bank of Canada from another rate hike in July. To talk more about all of this, Eric Cam is with us, professor of economics, Toronto Metropolitan University, and here now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. How's my favorite drive time personality? So far, so good. It's been a while since we've chatted. Um, I guess up a little, a tenth of a point last month to 4.3, uh, 4.4. Now it's down to 3.4. How do you explain the drop of a point this month? Um, on the fairly inconsequential range, I mean, when you take the core factors out of the uh, out of the rate, and that's what stats can tends to do, take the things out that flop around a little bit too much. That's basically no change. And that's about what I expected and many people expected. I mean, right now, you've kind of got two things going on at the same time, and they're not going to surprise you. You have a, a CPI, a consumer price index that's kind of flat, and that's not a bad thing, but you still have gross domestic product rising fairly quickly. And so I think what the Bank of Canada is doing is saying, well, we are we are winning the battle, but we have to win the war. And so the way to do that is to probably stay the course for the next three, four months but I would guess, and I'm not betting because I'm not a betting person, but I would say when September, October rolls around and the bank's federal committee meets, I would not be surprised if they raise rates another 25%. I mean, the bottom line is when you look at their webpage, when you look at their mission statement, they are dogged on a 2% inflation rate. And by God, if it's the last thing they, they do, they're going to get there. And if that means that some other things are going to have to go, well, I guess, Scott, so be it. But they're not going to stop until they get to 2%. So you're predicting another increase in July and then again in the fall? No, or, I think it's uh, going to be one here. or the other. I don't think okay, so nothing here and then... So something, nothing, perhaps nothing here and something in the fall or vice versa? Yeah, I think it's more likely in the fall. I mean, it's gone up so far, so fast. You know, people forget that this sucker was 025 not that long ago, and now it's four point seven five. And there, I mean, the 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 values that that translates to are very serious. Ask anybody with a variable rate mortgage that's gone from point two five to four point seven five, and they're seeing mortgage rates. I'm not double, but they've gone up, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent. And the bank knows that there's only so much that they can ask consumers and homeowners to do. They don't want to get to a point like the sad 1980s where people walked away from their houses. But at the same time, they want to bring inflation down. They are not satisfied with where it is now. I know a lot of people say, why doesn't the bank take a break? Because we're doing better. Prices have come down. I notice things are a little bit easier. But again, the bank has a mandate, just like everybody with a job has a mandate. And their mandate is to get that rate between 2 and 3%. And they're just, frankly, Scott, not there yet. It's interesting because many accuse them during the height of the pandemic of of not pulling back fast enough. Now it seems they're trigger happy to hit that 2%. Well, that's right. And, you know, welcome to the public sector when you can't win. I mean, I'm one of the people that said that they went far too far, far too fast during the pandemic. That type of monetary stimulus could only be met with the results that we had. And so when the government 
gave the Bank of Canada um, a big stinking pile of you know what, the Bank of Canada didn't have much choice but to react as far as it did, as fast as it did, and as sharp as it did. And I think in a lot of ways, we're lucky that prices didn't go even higher. This is unprecedented monetary stimulus, has never happened before, and God forbid it ever happens again. But you know, the bank can only do what the bank does. They can't do it by themselves. And people forget, they don't have much in their arsenal. They have really one thing, and that's to raise or lower interest rates, which raises or lowers the money supply. So they're doing everything they can do. I don't blame the bank. But I would ask them to remember that with every one of these rate changes, you leave more and more of a percentage of people that own homes vulnerable to losing their homes. And here's a statistic for you, Scott. 18%. That's the number of mortgages that have been renegotiated since this massive increase in the prime. So that means approximately four to five people that have a mortgage in this country haven't renegotiated yet. And wait till that kicks in. I can't let you go, Eric, without asking your thoughts on uh, the grocery industry, this sort of inflation related Uh, competition bureau says, no, we got to break this up. There's too much. uh, There's not enough competition here. Three major players. Sounds good. But will they do anything? You know, Wayne Gretzky was famous years ago for saying that something was a crock of crap. And that's what you've got here on your plate. You know, you can come out with these feel good statements and the public can get behind you and say, yeah, they're right. The competition bureau is right. You tell me how you're going to create competition in this country, which is a country that seems to be hell-bent on eliminating competition. It is just a feel-good statement. People can rally behind it and say, yes, that's what we need to do. But, Scott, come on. Anybody with uh, eyes and ears knows what's going on in this country right now in the telecom business and many businesses. We are getting rid of competition. We're not increasing it. And so the odds of there being more competition in any industry right now, not to mention one as important as the food industry, I give it zero stock. Eric Cam with us, professor of economics at Toronto Metropolitan University, talking about interest rates and the price of groceries. Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. It's always an honor. Stay healthy, Scott. It's 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Jump into the conversation, 905-645-3221. Talk, text, leave us your last word. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. We remember that uh, David Johnston uh, was the special rapporteur and then uh, came to the conclusion that there's absolutely no way we can find out what Justin Trudeau knew or when about alleged Chinese Communist Party interference into the last two elections. We couldn't do that without exposing some big, dark secrets within the government. Uh, however, he did say that, you know, uh, I'm going to step down because this is getting too ugly. But before the end of June, I'm going to give you a final report. And we got that today. However, it is confidential, which to me just, oh, my goodness. Um, two people that tried to solve a problem have now created even more that being the prime minister and the special rapporteur where do we go from here what does this mean let's bring in duff conacher co-founder of democracy watch and is with us now duff thanks for the time hope you're well yes thank you you what are your thoughts i mean my goodness i i just laughed when i when i heard of this it was this to be predicted that it would be confidential uh, that being uh, david johnson's final report I think so, given that uh, his initial report was largely confidential and he said, well, now I'm going to shift to uh, addressing policy changes that would help prevent foreign interference, but he didn't do that. So he was really just uh, finishing up 
his first stage, which was looking at confidential documents. So I'm not surprised that he's issued a confidential report in the end. Um, again, the biggest problem is he was Trudeau's friend. And as he admitted under questioning, he uh, he, he said there was uh, an ocean of documents. We looked at a large lake, and yet he drew conclusions. I mean, it's just his report is not really worth reading. Um, does David Johnston or the Prime Minister realize that they have created more questions than answers, that they've done more damage than repair here? Are they aware of that? Uh, I don't think so, fully. Um, you know, this is par for the course with Trudeau. When you look at the SNC-Lavalin scandal, the first uh, seven things that he said about it were false. And then he finally said something uh it was true that there was pressure on the attorney general, but then he spun it and said, uh, but it, it was an undue pressure. So to see him uh, choose a friend, David Johnston, because they both have said publicly they're friends, and have him uh, look at things behind closed doors um, and then come out with a report that says no inquiries needed, that that is how Trudeau has dealt with all of these kind of uh, scandalous situations since he's been elected, despite his promises when he was elected to be open and accountable and all his mandate letters to cabinet ministers, which I guess would include himself, were that they were to maintain the highest ethical standards and be honest and open and accountable. So was the David Johnson experiment just a waste of time or is there going to be something that comes out of this, even if it's all in secret and from a government perspective? Is it any good? Is it worth it? I would say, I haven't seen the documents, but he said there was an ocean of documents. We looked looked at a large lake worth of documents. Well, you shouldn't be drawing conclusions. Then. Yeah. You know, that's like saying we have half the evidence, so we'll just decide who's guilty without looking at the other half. Why? That's not an investigation. That's what an inquiry is for, is to look at everything. And also with independence. You know, David Johnston is a friend of Trudeau's. So right away, cannot be judging the actions of Trudeau or any of his cabinet ministers. It just disqualifies you automatically. And uh, he didn't recognize that. Um, And so, yeah, we need to start over, unfortunately. Uh, And that will hopefully be with an inquiry that I think the opposition parties will come up with very soon, including a list of... uh, recommended inquiry commissioners that they would all view as much more impartial and independent. Uh, obviously, the House of Commons not sitting over the summer. All of this is now but put, put back on the back burner. So what happens moving forward? What happens with a public inquiry? Uh, we know that uh, the government was asking opposition for some suggestions. Opposition was saying, we'll call the inquiry, then we'll come up with lots of suggestions. So it's like, you know, ping pong back and forth. What What is next? Well, I haven't seen that so much from the opposition parties. They said they were talking. Yeah, And uh, I think that if the Trudeau liberals were thinking, oh, the opposition parties will all fight amongst each other and we'll be let off the hook, I think they're wrong. I think the opposition parties will come up with both the terms of reference they agree on and a short list of people that they all think would be fine to do the inquiry. Uh, Parliament doesn't have to be open to start an inquiry. It's just an order of the government appointing an inquiry commissioner and setting out terms of reference. So... Uh, hopefully that will move ahead very soon because the so, sooner the better. We need we need uh, answers about who knew what when uh, and what they did about it 
in terms of uh, changing laws to prevent foreign interference, Democracy Watch appeared before the committee on May 9th. There's 20 things that need to be changed. They could have been changed long ago. We've been calling for them to be changed for a long time, and there's no reason to hesitate. There should be a bill in the fall that all the parties support to get these things changed well before any election can happen. So, um, and just correct me if I'm wrong here, the public inquiry, all of this uh, meeting between opposition and government and such, this can all be hammered out without uh, the, the House of Commons being in session. This could all be perhaps in place by the time the fall rolls around. Is that possible? Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, the prime minister, given inquiries are usually about wrongdoing in the government, the prime minister has the power and the only power to to. Uh, launch an inquiry and choose an inquiry commissioner under the Inquiries Act. Shouldn't be that way. Should require the opposition leaders to agree to both terms of reference and to uh, to who is appointed. But that's the way it is. And that prime minister can do that without any resolution in the House, just a decision. And then cabinet uh, uh, sets out an order appointing the person and, and the terms of reference. So again, no reason to uh, slow down on that. And as well, hopefully the committee will continue holding hearings through the summer and come out with a report with recommendations for changes to laws because we cannot go into another election with these 20 huge loopholes open that essentially make it legal to secretly interfere in our elections when you are funded by or sponsored or directed by a foreign government. It's that bad. We have loopholes that make it legal to do that in secret. Um, in regard to David Johnston, his final report, whatever it is that he did, did as a special rapporteur, um, and now, um, you know, said no public inquiry, and now this report being confidential, which, as you mentioned, was, I guess, to be expected. How does that change the discussion for a public inquiry? Does that just not heat things up for Canadians, or are they willing to let it simmer and do nothing over the summer? And, and you know, what happens, happens. Or does this reinforce the need for a public inquiry? I expect the opposition parties will keep uh, their... Uh they're pedal on the gas on this because yeah. if they let up, then they're just letting the liberals say, oh, well, the delay is not us. It's due to the opposition parties. And um, they will want it to be look the other way, that the liberals are d- continuing to delay. So I don't expect it will be long before we'll have uh, terms of reference uh, and uh, inquiry commissioners uh, list a short list of qualified people going back to uh, the Prime Minister and the Liberal Cabinet from the opposition parties. Duff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. David Johnston filing his final report as special rapporteur, and it is confidential. Duff, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.